Hey yo, welcome to Kiki's Corner, where biblical principles meet culture. Hello everyone, my name is Kiki Francois. I am your host. This is my corner of the world where I get the opportunity to be holy as Christ has called me to be holy and cultivate a space for others to join in. Welcome to season two of Kiki's Corner. Um, if you are new to the show, welcome. Um, please go and stream season one of Kiki's Corner on Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Overcast. There are six episodes included in season one. I talked about critical controversial issues that our current generation faces from sex to imposter syndrome. So head on over to season one for a recap. Um, but once again, welcome to season two of Kiki's Corner. Um, just a reminder, Romans 12, 2 guides everything we do on this show, and it reads like this. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And the subheading of this show is where biblical principles meet culture. And like I said on season one, we are not trying to dismantle or label culture as something bad, but we are trying to honor God with our culture. This is a glorified Bible study about ethics, about how do we live, but not just information. This is application. Um, I am after a countercultural life in Christ. And the title of this episode is Where is the Church? Policing Justice and Black Lives Matter. And we will get into the title of this episode. But first, I want to allow you all into my process of producing the show. Um, I really listen to God and I do not move until he tells me to. And so I look at what the people are saying and then I go back to God and I ask him, what is it that you want me to say to your people? Um, then I put together a logo <laughs> and some words that I hear from heaven. And then I begin to research and I hit record. Um, that is my process. So based on this week, I posted um, a quote on my Instagram story by Jude 3 Project. The quote said this, society needs to know where Christians stand on justice issues. Christians have to bear witness. And um, this quote uh, was by attorney and political strategist Justin uh, Jabani. And th that quote struck me and it stayed in my spirit for the next few days. And I said, okay, I have to bear witness as an individual who is a part of the church, which is the body of Christ, and I need to say something. Um, but before we get into the main part of the show, I need to get some definitions out of the way. So the first one is policing. Now, policing is, you know, as a police officer, by definition, is an officer, a policeman, or a policewoman is warranted, a warranted law employee of a police force. So police officers are generally charged with the apprehension of suspects and the prevention, detection, reporting of crime, protection, and assistance of the general public and the maintenance of public order. And so there is a history of policing in the United States with Black people. Um, and I love the way that Victor E. Kapler um, talks about it. He, he says the birth and development of, a, of the American police can be traced back to a multitude of historical, legal, and political economic condition. Um, the institution of slavery and the control of minorities, however, were two more formidable historic features of American society shaping early policing. Slave patrols and night watches, which later became modern police departments, were both designed to control the behaviors of minorities. Um, many Southern police departments begin as slave patrols. 
And um, in 1704, the colony of Carolina developed the nation's first slave patrol. Slave patrols helped to maintain the economic order and the assist and to assist the wealthy landowners in recovering and punishing slaves who essentially were considered property. Now, slavery was fully institutionalized in the American economic and legal order with laws being enacted at both the state and national divisions of government. So Virginia, for example, enacted more than 130 slave statutes between 1689 and 1865. Um, And this is a quote. um, This is a quote within the piece. It says the literature clearly establishes that a legally sanctioned law enforcement system existed in America before the Civil War for the express purpose of controlling the slave population and protecting the interests of slave owners. The similarities between the slave patrols and modern American policing are too salient to dismiss or ignore. Hence, the slave patrol should be considered a forerunner of modern American law enforcement. Now, we know that Blacks have been long targets of abuse. So the use of patrols to capture runaway slaves was one of the precursors of former police forces, especially in the South. This dangerous legacy persisted as an element of the police role even after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in some cases, police harassment simply meant people of African descent were more likely to be stopped and questioned by the police, while at the other extreme, they have suffered beatings and even murder at the hands of white police. Questions still arise today about the disproportionately high numbers of people of African descent killed, beaten, and arrested by police in major urban cities of America. Now, we have to look at history with a critical lens here, and it is crucial for us to examine the inception of policing. Liz Kleinrock says this, the words protect and serve have not meant everyone in our history just as all men are created equal did not mean all men the role the role of police historically has been to protect and serve the white the wealthy and the well connected um now i'm going to stop here and say this um just this fact i just want y'all to hear this did you know that police killed at least 104 unarmed black people in 2015 nearly twice each week. That's two a week, okay? Um, and you can get this information from mapping police violence for evidence and names. And I think for me, that is what st- stuck out to me the most. The names and de- the descriptions of the murders. You would see the the name, you would see, you know, the ethnicity or the race, and then you would see like, you know, unclear if they had, they were armed or not, you know, they were suspected to have a weapon. And then at the bottom, you'll see case closed. <laughs> And so, yeah, that was hard to research and to see for me. And so my question here is, how do you reform a racist route? How do you redeem a department that was meant to catch slaves and control black people's bodies? Can we take another George Floyd, Eric Gardner, Ahmaud Arbery, Sandra Bland, and please, y'all, I'm begging, please don't forget about Breonna Taylor. Um... And another question that I have about this is about law enforcement. What about when the law is powerless and corrupt, as it says in Habakkuk? What about when the law is uh, sluggish and justice doesn't prevail, but it actually kills? It actually snuffs out. 
Um, what, what do we do there? So those are questions to meditate on as we get through this show. Um, but here are two opinions from current society regarding policing, um, the current state of policing and the future of policing that I hear um, from the people. The first one is reform. So what does ethical community policing look like? How do we hold police officers accountable? What are the punishments for someone with the power of enforcing the law and they have maybe a prejudice or racism towards black people? How, how, do, how, do, we, how do we do that? Um, how do we um, how do we look at them? How do we, how do we evaluate them? Um, maybe this can be done through yearly psychological evaluations of each officer, maybe getting a degree in criminal justice, a four-year bachelor's degree, um, maybe changing the targets from black silhouettes to a different color. And that also plays into a lot of what's going on as well. And so I just, I want to tell you, I want to tell y'all a story I ran across about, about target practice, actually. Let me, let me tell y'all a story. So in 2015, um, and this, this story actually comes from the Washington Post. So you can actually look it up. Um, in 2015, there, uh, the Miami police department was caught using photos of black teenagers as target practice. Um, the chief defended the department, but denied racial profiling and said that officers use images of people of all races. Now, a reverend and other pastors were talking about this, and uh, the, the pastors, they came from the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, and they had a Facebook group page, and they, they discussed how to respond to something that was emblematic of a deeper uh, systemic problem. And so they decided, you know, maybe we ought to make it harder to pull the trigger and volunteer to put pictures of their families. So they started a hashtag and called it use me instead for the Miami police department. Um, and you could, that was really bold. I read that and I, I said, Whoa. <laughs> so one, they recognize the history of racial bias and racism in this country and police brutality. That's unfairly, um, against African-Americans or excuse me, against black people in this country. Um, and so, you know, they said, use me instead. We are white clergy and you can use our photos instead. See how, see how hard it is to pull the trigger. Yeah. Because you got some people in your, on your team, <laughs> um, who are doing something very wrong, which is taking teenagers, black teenagers and using them as target practice. And this was from a 2015 article. So y'all can go ahead and read it and look it up. Um, but I thought that was really bold. And so, um, one, a quote from the article said, um, that, uh, one of the pastors said, it's such a desensitizing thing that if you start aiming at young black men and told to put a bullet in them, you become desensitized. So they said, you know what? Here are 66 photos of us and our family. How about you put us up there and become desensitized to us? How about you? How about you? Go ahead. You use me. Go ahead. You want to you want to be racist? You want to be discriminatory? You want to be prejudiced? Use me instead. And so I thought that was really bold um, when I saw that. That's just one story. But the second thing um, that I'm hearing is um, two things kind of within the one defund and dismantle the police. And a lot of question that has been circulating is does defunding the police mean disbanding the police? And based on an article that I read by um, Philip McHarris, it says it depends on who you ask. So it's really like a spectrum, right? And so, um, and so some supporters are saying, hey, we want to diverge or, you know, want to reallocate some but not all funds away from police departments to social services. Some want to strip all police 
uh, funding and dissolve the department. And the concept exists on a spectrum, but both interpretations center on reimagining what public safety looks like, shifting the resources away from law enforcement toward uh, community resources. Um, and so, you know, disbanding the police is more a radical imagination um, than um, than defunding the police, right? And so, um, you know, they're saying, hey, these body cams aren't working. <laughs> Nothing is working. And, you know, Black people are ending up in the custody of the police and they're ending up dead. So we need to try something different and we need to reimagine how this all works. Um, and so taking the funds, the, the funds could go to the communities of color. And what that does, it, it takes the resources away from the police to do harms to do harm to these communities, right? Um, and so we know that uh, Minneapolis officials announced their intent to defund and disband the city's police altogether. Um, it's the MPD 150, a community advocacy organization, and they focus on abolishing local police. Um, and since the death of George Floyd, um, you know, they've been getting more attention. And so those ideas are in the air, those ideologies, those perspectives, those suggestions in the air. So now let's talk about Black Lives Matter and um, and what that is and what that really means, because I, I think I, some people don't know what that means. So in 2013, three Black organizers, Alicia Garza, Patrice Culler, um, Colors and Opal Tometi created a Black-centered political will and movement building project called Black Lives Matter. Now, it was in response to the, to the acquittal of Trayvon Martin's murderer, George Zimmerman. Now, this is an organization. The members organize and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on Black communities by the state and vigilantes. So it is an affirmation of Black folks' humanity, their com contributions to society, and their resilience in the face of deadly oppression. Black Lives Matter was developed in support of all Black lives. Now, we know that there have been some people who, you know, misused the name Black Lives Matter and have tried to, um, you know, uh, just take matters into their own hands and it's kind of not on the focus of what black lives matter means as an organization but as the word says you know black lives matter is just more the slogan saying hey black lives matter we we affirm that that is you know those are kind of two different definitions of like hey this is the organization and this is more of the slogan of what it means so you know lecrae said it really well on his instagram um i really appreciated how he broke that down um but let's just let's go back i'm talking to the church now if human beings, which I do not know their faith background, okay, can get together and say, no, something is ethically wrong and we need to band together to advocate, defend, and protect lives who look like us against state-sanctioned violence, right? What is our job? <laughs> what is our job in the midst of this, of what's going on? If people with a conscience can say, hey, no more. What is our job in the midst of this? And I'll get that. I'll get to that later with the biblical principle um, that we're going to use. But I just need to get to justice now. And let's get to the legal definition of justice. One, it's fairness. Two, moral rightness. And three, a scheme or system of law in which every person receives his, her, its due from the system, including all rights, both natural and legal. All right. 
Now, let's talk about another form of justice, which is could also be include, included in biblical justice, but I'm just kind of defining them separately. Retributive justice and restorative justice. Now, retributive justice is a perspective that focuses on punishment for the offender, while restorative justice focuses on the relationship between the offender and the victim. All right. So now what is the biblical definition of justice? So according to the biblical justice that God sets forth, all humans are equal and all humans are created in his image and all humans deserve to be treated with fairness and justice. Now the prophet Amos instead portrays justice as a river. So Amos 5:24 says, "But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream." And there are two words that are synonymous here. Um, and we learned this in school and you can learn this in the church. You can learn this in Bible study. It's justice and righteousness, right? So in the original Hebrew, justice is misfat and righteousness is sedake. However, sedake means more than the personal moral righteousness. It also means justice. Um, so Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says the two words sedake and misfat signify different forms of justice. Misfat means retributive justice or the rule of law. Sedake, by contrast, refers to what is often called social justice, meaning that those who have more than they need must share some of that surplus with those who have less. All right, let's we in it now. We're in the thick of things here. I have seen black churches and some white churches, Asian American churches, um, who have been very vocal about Black Lives Matter, um, about, you know, policing and reform and what are the next steps that we need to take, um, you know. But I've also seen <laughs> some churches be silent and not say anything, okay? And my argument here is that we set the moral standard and people should know where we stand on these issues of justice, right, of police brutality amongst a certain group who needs our help. I happen to be a part of that group. So um, to get us to where we need to go here for today's episode, I'm going to read pieces from the letter from a Birmingham jail by MLK and just explain to all the churches who are, whether they're just preaching the word and not really enacting it, whether they're saying, hey, we need to wait, whether they're saying, hey, this is not how we do it, um, you know, in a sense of demonstrations and, you know, police reform, how all that's going. Let me just take a note from the past and bring it here um, because it's still re relevant. But more basically, um, this is an excerpt from uh, the letter from a Birmingham jail by MLK. But more basically, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the prophets of the 8th century BC left their villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their towns. And just as the apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compared to, compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law, as would the rabid segregationalists. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, 
lovingly and with the willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the consciousness of the community over its injustice in is in reality expressing the highest respect for law. Of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidence, evidence sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the grounds that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than to submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. So, and I'm going to read this last part. First, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's greatest stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizens' counselors or um, the KKK, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your method of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. So I read that and I say all that to, to, to say and to get us to a place of where the church needs to be and where, where you know, we don't need to be silent about this. Um, but I, I think another question is, where is the church? What is our place in all of this? What is the biblical principle or, in our case, the biblical response to police brutality towards Black people in America? Not just brutality, but it is murder. We are seeing police officers murder, kill, take the life, separating soul from body, body, body from soul, taking someone's spirit away, snuffing out a life with the authority to do so. How do we, as the church, look at this and do nothing? When someone is being unjust, how do we stand? Hmm. Here's the biblical principle that I'm suggesting that we use here in this day and age. Justice. <laughs> you could have guessed it. Yes, justice. Um, and what does that look like? That looks like protesting. That looks like signing petition. That looks like preaching from the pulpit about reform, racism, racial bias and telling your congregation that black lives indeed do matter. Justice looks, looks like economics as well. Um, and so there are so many issues, but the question is like, where's your focus? So to do justice is to correct something, right? You need to correct the wrong. You, there, there's something, there, you, there's a wrong being done by police officers to the black community. I'm, I'm trying to get this through your head. Like there, there's something wrong and the church, we set the moral standard and, and, and we should set the moral standard and they should know how we feel about this and what we have to say. And there's so much to be done. And so we need to do what? Intervene on the behalf of black people. I can't say it any more clearer than that. So, yeah, 
Micah 6, 8 says this. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so I'm giving all this history. I'm showing you different sides of the story. I gave you the biblical principle of justice, of how we have to chase after it. We have to seek it. We have to go for it. We have to advocate. We have to defend. We have to protect. We have to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We have to love God, have a conversation with God about how best do we as the church fit in this situation. And I would advise some evangelicals to, you know, not remain silent and talk about it. Talk about what's going on. Don't just preach the gospel. Preach the gospel, but make sure it has legs. Make sure it's walking. Make sure it's active and not passive. We cannot continue like this. There is unrest for a reason. I'm going to pray. And I hope y'all have a, um, a really good week. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you. Lord, we just want to thank you for who you are. Um, God, you are so mighty. You are so strong. You are so just. God, you see everything. And Lord, we are asking that uh, the church um, bonds together and bands together to advocate and defend and to love on um, everybody, Lord. But right now, specifically black lives who are uh, being snuffed out um, by, you know, corruption and injustice. Um, Lord, we are asking that you just be with us right now as we try to figure this out, Lord, but that we advocate and that we love and that we get some reform and that, Lord, we pray and that we advise our congregation on what to do and how to do it, Lord, and that we pray for the families of the lives lost. Lord, we pray pray for everybody, Lord, over our world and cover it um, with your blessing and your spirit. God, we need you. And these are tough conversations to have, um, but we can't get anywhere if we don't have these conversations. So bless us, love us. We love you. Amen. If you like what you heard, please follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Kiki's Corner Podcast. That's Kiki's Corner with an S podcast. Check out my website, kikifrancois.com, for bookings, content, and past episodes from this show. I update the website weekly, and I'm constantly on Instagram. Y'all should just call me the late night preacher. Um, (laughs) If you would like to be featured on this show, please DM me on my Instagram or email me at kikiscornerpodcast at gmail.com. That is all that I have for y'all. Y'all have a beautiful week. Peace.